Well, as we continue today with our study of the book of Acts, and then also as we continue through that study to develop this great big transformational idea that we've been talking about this year, and that is that life for the believer in Jesus is mission, we come today to Acts chapter 19, and with it to the realization that this mission that we're on of, and I want to pause for a second because I want you to hear the language that's coming. It's language of sacrifice. It's language of self-denial. It's language of death to ourselves, to our passions, to our desires, to our thoughts, to our agendas, to what we'd want to do, and to all of the things of this world in favor of Jesus. We come today to Acts 19, and with it to the realization that this mission that we're on of, and here it comes, laying down our lives after the fashion of Jesus. For that is the way of Jesus. And to do what? Well, to do what he did to take His gospel mercies and to take His gospel message to the world beginning with each one of our little individual worlds, we come today to the realization that that mission requires us to forsake our idols. And here's what I mean by that. It requires us to turn away from those things that in truth we have turned to and have become for us our true source, for example, of happiness, or our true source of identity, or our true source of security, or our true source of hope, or frankly, just the true thing, well, that we live for, irrespective of whatever it is that we may say. And I say that because I think sometimes we say and even think, like we believe it when we say it, one thing, but reality is another. And so we'll say things like, well, you know, I mean, Jesus is my happiness, right? He is. But here's the reality about my life. Unless I fail to achieve this, unless I fail to gain this, unless I fail to keep this, unless this blows up on me, in which case, I'm going to be utterly miserable. I'm not just going to be sad or disappointed. I'm going to be devastated. Well, wait a minute. What's going on there? See how it works? Same thing with identity. Jesus is my identity until my business fails or one of my children fail, in which case, I'm worthless. Jesus is my security until you take away my securities, and then not so much. Jesus is my hope until this person that I dearly love rejects me or leaves me or dies. And I'm hopelessly lost in despair. Jesus is my life until you examine my life carefully, and then you realize, no, 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 wait a minute, there's someone or something else in the center of my life that everything else in my life, including Jesus, revolves around We come today to Acts 19, and with it to the realization that the mission that we're on, it's a self-denying mission, it's a sacrificial mission, it's a death-to-me mission. Okay, this mission that we're on requires us to forsake our idols, to die to them that we might really and truly live to Jesus. And we pick up our study in Acts 19, beginning in verse 23. Where Luke, who is the author of this book, says this. He says that at about that time, meaning at about the same time that the Apostle Paul decided to wrap up his ministry in the city of Ephesus that we've been studying and seeing these last couple of weeks, and then go on to Rome. That's his destination, but he's going to go by way of Jerusalem. So around the time that he made that decision, there arose no little disturbance, meaning a great big disturbance, concerning the way. And what Luke means there is the people of the way. It's a pretty cool statement. See, the reality is, and he's letting us know this, is that the pagan idolaters in the city of Ephesus looked at the Christians in the city of Ephesus, and they began to call them people of the way, meaning the way of Jesus. But wait a minute, what is the way of Jesus? 
the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's the way of self-denial. It's the way of sacrifice. It is the way of death in which we're dying, even as he did, that we might then find life in him. And what's so awesome about these Christians in Ephesus is that when the other people of their city saw them and realized and witnessed their lives, they said, my goodness, these guys are living life, well, after the way of Jesus, which means that they're trusting for their happiness, identity, security, hope, life, and everything else, not in what we, the people of Ephesus, are trusting in, but really and truly in Christ. And they're dying to the things that we trust in. It's an amazing testimony. And so again, Luke says that at about that time that Paul decided to wrap up his ministry in Ephesus and to go to Rome by way of Jerusalem, there arose no little disturbance, a great big disturbance, in fact, concerning the people of the way, concerning the Christians in the city. And here's why. Because the Christian gospel, as taught by Paul to the people in that city, clearly, unequivocally, undeniably, unambiguously called everyone who would follow the way of Jesus in that city to forsake the idols of that city. And as you're studying a story like this, you've got to kind of pause and go, okay, this is a good moment for me to step out of their story and out of first century Ephesus and into 21st century Fort Lauderdale and into my own personal story and do our story and ask ourselves, okay, what is the exact same gospel Call all who would follow the way of Jesus in Fort Lauderdale to do, if not to forsake the idols of our city, which I will grant you are not little silver figurines, but that are nonetheless every bit as real. An idol is anything or anyone other than Jesus that in truth you look to as the true source of your happiness or of your identity or of your security or of your hope or of your life or, for that matter, anything else that you should really be looking to Christ for. And I honestly don't think the question is whether or not we have idols. I think the question is, what idols do we have? John Calvin, I think, was very instructive in that regard. You know, Calvin, as he taught, as he studied the Scriptures, and, and rarely has a man been more brilliant, honestly, than him. He spoke of his own heart and of my heart and of yours when he said the human heart is an idol factory. <laughs> And what he's saying is, I, John Calvin, and I, Tom Hendricks, and everybody here today as well, all of us by nature are manufacturing idols all of the time, things that we take and place in place of Jesus on the throne of our hearts and begin to revolve our lives around and which have no business being there. The question isn't, do we have idols? It's, okay, what idols do I, do we, do you have? And I think Luke gives us a pretty good clue, for he tells us in verse 24 that this great disturbance was created by a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, who was the patron goddess of that city. Artemis lived, if you will, we'll put that in quotes, she lived, because she's not alive, but she resided in one of the seven wonders of the world located in that city. The temple of Artemis was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was supported by 120 pillars of marble, 60 feet tall, ornamented by the greatest sculptors of antiquity. And it brought this worship of Artemis 
No little business, we read, to the craftsmen there in Ephesus like Demetrius. And so these craftsmen, Demetrius organized, he gathered these guys together and along with the workmen in similar trades. So like everybody who's affected is the idea and he got them all worked up. And listen to what he said. He said to them, men, you know that from this business we have our what? Because this is their real God. It's not Artemis, it's, it's well, it's wealth. Wealth, not Artemis, was the God of that city. Certainly the God of these men. I would add to that sex, if you know something about that city. So different from us? Or are we tracking? I think it's right on. He said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people from worshiping Artemis and therefore from buying our products. And he's doing that by saying that God's made with hands, you know, like our hands, gentlemen, like the ones that we make, Well, they're not really gods. And so there is danger, he says, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute and we might lose money, but then also, and now here comes his false piety, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, even though it's one of the seven wonders of the world, may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worships. And now notice what happens with this group. Because this is what happens to me. This is what happens to you when one of your idols is threatened. They're not just disappointed. They don't just get sad and go, oh, wow, bummer. They're not even just mildly irritated. It says when they heard this, they were enraged. And we too, I think, get enraged, if you will. When one of our gods is threatened, why? Because they're not just threatening when one of our gods is threatened, something or some person that we're, you know, mildly interested in. They're threatening our source of happiness, identity, security, hope, or life. So here again is one of those step out moments where you go, okay, well, what makes me angry? How would you answer that? As you dig down underneath the explosiveness, what what is it exactly that's causing the explosiveness? As you dissect it and look honestly at it, what's being threatened that makes you so angry? Because it may be an idol. Now, let me ask a similar question. Preacher's prerogative. You ready? What is it that you... I mean, like, what topic... That if you knew I was going to preach on this today, other than idolatry, would have kept you home. Like, I mean, if you could make a list of the things you don't want to hear about at church, what would that list entail? And is that for the glory of Christ? Like, I love Jesus so much and I really want to worship him so much that I just don't even want to hear about this. Is that it? What do you fantasize about? What do you daydream about? Where does your money go? Because Jesus says that that's a very interesting trail. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Luke says that when they heard about the threat to their income that was posed by the gospel, they were enraged and were crying out. The idea being here over and over again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so so this city that had a population of roughly 250,000 people was filled with confusion and they rushed this group together into the theater, which was an open air theater cut into the side of a hill. It overlooked a beautiful colonnaded road that led out to the harbor. So you can imagine how this shouting, it's at 24,000, would echo out toward the harbor and through a part of the city. And they went into the theater dragging with them, here's two guys you don't want to be one of, Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. You know, I mean, they're just walking out of the ice cream store and off they go. But when Paul wished to go in among them, among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, that is to say some of the high-ranking officers of this province of Asia, who were friends of Paul, sent a message to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater, probably for fear of his life. Such was their passion. And we read then in verse 24 that for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, echoing through their city. And then Luke says that when the town clerk, who is having a bad day, this is the guy probably you don't want to be, When the town clerk, who's charged with trying to bring order out of this, finally quiets the crowd down, so that implies it took a while, he said this, and I want you to follow his reasoning. It's very interesting. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. The thought here being, the speculation being, that Artemis herself was created perhaps out of the metal of a meteor literally fell from the sky is the idea. Seeing that these things cannot be denied, he says, and that her temple is, well, one of the seven wonders of the world, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash for you. He's putting it on these guys, these people. For you, he says, have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. He's saying, look, they are not the cause of the problem here. You guys are. And if therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen with him who are all worshiping the little god of money have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls to address their financial complaints and let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything, it shall be settled there in the regular assembly properly, civilly, as opposed to here in a riot for otherwise, and this is the real clincher, this is his closing argument. And this wins the day, he says, for otherwise, we really are in danger of being charged and the idea then being also and convicted, because he's going to say in a second, we got no defense against this charge by the Roman authorities for rioting. And what is the penalty for rioting? It's a heavy fine. It's an economic sanction. He says, for otherwise, we really are in danger of being charged and then convicted and then fined big time by the Roman authorities with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify what's happening here. And so when he had said these things, I guess everybody in town bought the argument and left. 
He dismissed the assembly and off they went. But did you catch his argument? He's saying, listen, Demetrius and these craftsmen, motivated by their worship of the idol of money, are the ones bringing social unrest to our city. Not Paul, not Gaius, not Aristarchus, not the Christian gospel, not the Christian people, them. And ironically, he's saying that Demetrius and all of his fellow craftsmen are also going to be the ones to bring economic deprivation to our city. Not Paul, not Gaius, not Aristarchus, not the Christians or the Christian gospel if this riot doesn't end, and it does. But what is the town clerk, I think, teaching us here? I think he's saying, hey, look, idols don't deliver what they promise. And in fact, they deliver the exact opposite. In their case, they promise what? Order and prosperity. But what did they bring? Disorder and threatened impoverishment. And they come to us as well, and they promise us happiness, and they deliver misery in the end. They promise to make us feel good about ourselves, and and they make us feel worthless. They promise security and bring insecurity, hope, and they bring despair. They promise life, and in the end, they deliver death to us. And they do that even when the idols that we worship in and of themselves are good things. They just cease to be good for us when we take and make them the ultimate thing, when we place them instead of Christ on the throne of our hearts and begin to have everything else in our life, including Jesus, revolve around whatever this thing or whatever this person is. And I'll give you a few examples. If you take your spouse and you make them the true source of your happiness in life, okay, neither one of you are going to be happy for long because you will crush them under the weight of your expectations, seeking to derive from them something you can only get from God. And they will crush you under the weight of their imperfections. And then if they're trying to do the same thing to you, it's double disaster, isn't it? And one day death comes. And wherein does your happiness lie then? It's troubling. If your identity is in your work, it's going to affect the quality of your work in part because you won't be able to receive any constructive criticism, at least not very well, about your work. Why? Because they're not just criticizing your work, they're criticizing your worth. And you have a deep-seated need to feel better about yourself than their criticism implies you ought to feel. And then on top of that, you know, you work, you work, you work, you work, you work, you work. What if you lose your job? That's devastating. But you work, you work, you work, you save, you put away, you save, you put away. Then you retire and you think, wow, this is going to be it. And it's not it if your identity is grounded in your work. Because for all that you've saved, for all that you've accumulated, for all the plans that you've made, what have you lost? You've lost yourself. You've lost your ability to manufacture for yourself value by means of what you do. The same could be said of parenting, you know, when your identity is grounded in producing perfect children. That's some shaky ground, man. Isn't it? They're spawns of us, so right out of the gate, you know. And it's hard when that's the case to hear anyone criticize, even as helpful as they can possibly be, in in the most sincere, I want to help you kind of ways, your kids. Because they're not just criticizing your kids, they're diminishing your worth if that's where your identity is grounded. And what do you do when one of them really, really isn't perfect? And, or when they all finally grow up and move out and they don't need you anymore the way that they used to? 
If your identity is grounded in your kids, you're lost. Who am I? I've been mom or I've been dad and now I'm... And it's like your life's mission is over. If, if that's your mission, if that's what your world revolves around, or if you look to money as the true source of your security, you'll just never have enough of it. Because you'll always know that it's subject to the fickle and corrupt governments and economies of this world, or if your hope is in your health. I don't know. I mean, the last time I checked, it's a 100% mortality rate, so I'm, I think that's problematic. Okay? Idols promise one thing, and they deliver another. They take your life, and they bring you death. What does Jesus do? He takes your death, and He brings you life. And He says, now here, your life is mine. Live it for me. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, right? Take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a place of sacrifice. It's a life of self-denial, of dying to us and to the things of this world that call us and say, here, I'm happiness. No, you're not. Liar, liar. Here, here, identity. You want to feel good about... Sorry. Security, hope, life. Trusting in him. The mission that we're on of laying down our lives, it's the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross. It's dying to ourselves that we might live to him. Okay, that mission of laying ourselves down after the fashion of Christ to take his gospel mercies and message to the world is one that requires us to forsake our idols. And so then, practically speaking, how do you do that? I mean, really, is it like, do I need to learn to love my idol less? Is that the deal? So if my idol is my wife, I need to learn to love her less? Is that how it works? If it's my kids, if it's my work, if it's my... I don't think that's the way it works. I think it's by learning to love Jesus more. Paul says this to the Colossians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, which is just within the theology of Paul, a different way of saying, if then you are really believers in Jesus. He comes to us and he teaches us about our unity with Christ. And he's saying that in Christ, by faith, you died. You died to you and your plans and dreams, agendas, passions, all of that stuff. And to all of the things in this world. And you were raised with Christ, which is the part that he just mentioned. Raised with him to do what? To be filled with his spirit. To be his hands and feet in this world and mouth as well. To go on his mission, if then you have been raised with Christ, he says, do what? Seek the things that are above. Now, you got to stop there for a minute. How much time and effort do you put into that? Seeking the things that are above. I mean, we're all involved in seeking the things that are below. And look, there's a practicality to that. I mean, we need money to live. I get all that stuff. Believe me. But the calling is to seek the things that are above. Above, where Christ, your King, is seated at the right hand of God and from which He reigns over everything, including every detail and minutia of your life. He says it again here, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of this earth. 
For you and your sin and your affections for all of the idols of this world and of this city have died. They were crucified on the cross with Jesus. And your life, which is no longer yours, is hidden with Christ and God. And so then, when Christ, who is your what? Who is part of your life. He's one piece. He's some percentage thereof. When Christ, who is your life, who subsumes the whole of it, when Jesus appears, then you will also appear with Him where? In glory. And why exactly is that? Because the way of Jesus, which is the way of sacrifice, self-denial, and death, ends what? In resurrection. It ends in eternal glory for Him, for me, and for all who follow the way of Jesus. He's calling us to look at the end and to live now in light of it. But you got to keep your mind on things above, don't you? If you're going to do that. And so then he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, and gives us this non-exhaustive list that, in my opinion, are mostly centered around the gods of sex and money. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. I want, I want, I want more. I'd like more. I need more. I want more. Which is idolatry. So how do you forsake your idols? I think you do that by bringing them to Jesus in repentance. And then day by day, taking up your cross daily, dying to yourself that you might live unto Him by the power of His Spirit in community with believers through things like personal worship, right? Setting your minds on the things above. Setting your minds on the things above that your life may follow your mind. So, what are your idols? What makes you really furious when they're touched, when they're threatened, when they're questioned, when they're marginalized? What do you really not want to hear a sermon on other than idolatry at church? What do you fantasize and daydream about? Where does your money go and not go? And what does that say about what you worship? And will you today bring your idols to this table in repentance and lay them down, if you will, figuratively speaking, at the feet of your Savior, who is physically represented, he's not in the elements, but they represent his body broken for you, his blood shed for you, and he's spiritually here and receive from him Receive from Him that which He sacrificed to cover over all of your idolatry and to forgive your every sin. And then having done that, to resolve in your heart by the power of His Spirit and community with other people in this church to begin to set your mind and life on the things above. The mission requires us to forsake our idols that we might embrace Jesus. We give to gain, and we die to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You for uh, our Savior. God, we thank You for the One who can make a sacrifice valuable enough in Your eyes to wash away our every sin,
Lord, I pray that we might repent of our impure affections, of all of those things in our lives, all of those people perhaps in some sense in which we're bending our lives around and we're trying to derive things from that that those things and those people cannot deliver and that we only should be rightly looking to in you. God, give us a vision of our Savior. Help us to see him. Lord, lead us to train our minds and thus then also our lives on the things above and to find him sweeter than anything or anyone else that we might in him find internally our happiness, our identity and worth. Lord, our real and true security, our hope and our life both here and throughout all eternity. We pray these things and we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.